0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVN Nudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science or business management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVA Nudge Unit, and with me is my colleague,
2: Richard Chataway. Hi, Richard. Hi, Eric. Uh, It's great to be joining you again, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Uh, Annie Duke is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in decision-making. Annie has just published a wonderful new book, How to Decide: Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She's also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. In 2020, she joined the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Annie, we're very happy and honoured to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. And as an occasional poker player myself, I'm looking forward to hopefully improving my poker skills. Welcome, Annie.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: Annie, we would love uh, if you could
1: start off by sharing with us a little bit of history of on your personal journey and what got you interested in behavioral science and cognitive psychology.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. So. I st- so I went to college at Columbia. Um, And when I was there, I was uh, on scholarship and part of the that was a work study program. So, um, you know, as part of my financial aid package, I needed to uh, get a job and, you know, there's job postings. So one of the postings that I saw was to be a research assistant for a cognitive psychologist named Barbara Landau. So I, you know, I, I had kind of been thinking about, you know, I knew I was going to major in English, but also I was thinking that psychology might be kind of interesting. And she was in the psychology department there. And so that seemed like a good fit. And I went and interviewed with her and got the job and I loved her. And I actually was her research assistant for four full, full years until I graduated. So she really encouraged me to go to Penn. That was where she had gotten her PhD um, and to go study with her mentors, Lila and Henry Gleitman. Um, and luckily, a smart decision on my part. I listened to her um, and th- I went off and did that for, for five years. So that was kind of the genesis of getting interested in this. Now, while I did have the privilege of getting to take a couple of classes in decision making, particularly with John Barron, who obviously is a giant in the field, um, that was not my specific area of focus at the time. Um, My areas of focus was actually in first language acquisition. Um, But the thing is that a lot of the things that you're thinking about in, you know, particularly the areas that I focus in in behavioral science are actually quite related to the problem of first language acquisition. Because you're talking about kind of no pun intended, very noisy data that the child is given in terms of the mapping problem of how do you really understand how a child when they hear a new word you know something like dax you know and the mother or the father or whoever points out into the world and says dax how how does the child actually map that sound onto whatever it is that it's referring to so you could think about something you know and the intuitive the answers that had had a lot of people had come up with prior to this were you know well i mean when you say dax there's dogs in the world and so obviously the child should be able to sort that through and figure out whenever there's a dog in the world, the, the mom says Dax or the dad says Dax. The pro- there's a lot of problems with that. First of all, kids learn, learn these mappings much more quickly than, you know, they don't actually collect enough data. So that, that's a big problem with that type of explanation. But the other problem is that you can think about like anytime that there's a dog in the world, there's also an animal in the world. And there's also fur in the world. And there's also a nose and paws and soft and there's also barking and there's also pointing and there's also, you know, walking or whatever. And then you get into this real problem of like the parent could be saying, I think there is a dog. Right. So they could be thinking. Anyway, so th- these become actually quite difficult in terms of the mapping problems. Like how specific is the category? You're talking about a part of the dog or are you talking about an animal or a mammal or they could be saying Schnauzer, right? Like th- these become very difficult to address. So it turns out that the solutions that we were looking at and we were studying, actually, this, you're going to understand this, were what is the, the the structure of the language that those words are sitting in, right? So this starts to get to this idea of like, how are you structuring your decision environment in to- order to reduce the effects of uncertainty? So. Grammars have certain qualities and they actually narrow things down for you. So in in English, for example, if I say I dax into the store and I also say I went out for a dax and I also say I'm daxing, there can only be certain things that that could be, right? So first of all, you know, it's a verb, number one, and you know, it's a verb that can both take like a prepositional object. And then if I said I dax the dog, you know, it could take a prepositional object, it could take an actual object, it could live without an object because I can say I'm daxing, Um, right? And then you know that it could be converted to a noun, right? Because I can say I'm taking a dax, okay? And if I say to you, what, what word am I talking about? You know that it's like, walk right? Like what else could that be? So, so once I'm giving you this structure that it's sitting in, it actually narrows down the choice set for you that then allows the child to do these kinds of mappings in a more efficient way. So anyway, I know that was really wonky, but that's what I was studying in graduate school. But you can see, like, I hope you can see like how that's so related to what I do now. And certainly as I entered poker, it's very similar problems. You have this hidden information. You don't know how you're supposed to model your opponent or model, you know, map your opponent's actions on to, to who they are as a person, and then have that predict how they're going to act in the future. And it's actually the exact same problem. And this is this thread that I've been kind of pulling throughout my whole life since I started as a research assistant with Barbara Landau. That was really wonky and really off track. But there was your answer.
1: No, I'm great. Right, it it is exactly the insights that we would like uh, uh, for our uh, listeners. Uh, but coming back uh, to uh, your uh, background, you mentioned uh, some mentors. Could you tell us uh, if you have uh, other mentors that had a strong influence on you?
0: Yeah, so obviously Barbara Landau was, you know, my original mentor, and then. Um, Lila and Henry Gladen. Lila is so lovely. She we had her 90th birthday party at my house last year, actually, and she's she's so she's like the smartest person I've ever come across in my life. She's so amazing. But at Penn, there were some other people who had a really big influence on me. Not you know Lila's husband Henry, obviously, but then a guy named Bob Barbara scorla who uh, was actually doing a, a lot of stuff in like classical conditioning and that that kind of learning paradigm, um, which had a really deep effect on me. He was on my PhD committee. Actually, he was on my dissertation committee, despite my having never actually completed my PhD, but that's a whole other story because that was, last. um, so he had a really big effect on me. Then a guy named Randy Gallistel, um, when I was at Penn also had a really big effect on me. He does a lot of stuff on sort of computational modeling in, in, uh, animals, actually how an- animals can come up with computational models really quickly. Um, so he actually stood, a little bit alongside someone like Bobber Scorla who was talking about this kind of stimulus response, you know, learning. And, and he was talking about like the ease with which they can do this kind of very fast computational model modeling without a, a lot of experience. So I think that was also someone who had a really big effect on me. And then later, I mean, I had some amazing poker mentors. I mean, my brother was one of them. Eric Seidel was another really important mentor in my life for sure. Um, and now I've I've just got like some amazing like mentors and thought partners in my life. Michael Mobison, Mobison rather. Michael Mobison is definitely one of them. Um, Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellors. Uh, you know, I they've taken me into their lab, and I have learned so much about how to be an amazing scientist from both of them, as I did from Lila way back when. Um, you know, Cass Sunstein for sure um, has, has really taken on a really important role in terms of thought partnership and mentorship. Uh, oh my gosh, there's just like, it's, there's, I've been really lucky. Like there's so many people who have been just really amazing in my life in terms of helping me along in my thinking. Um, so, I mean, I could go, I've, I'll stop there. Cause it's just, it's a lot of people, but I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some really important
2: people.
1: Okay, thanks a, a lot. Richard, I'm sure that you would like to talk a little about poker with Annie.
2: <laughs> I would, I would. I mean, I, I should point out I am a terrible poker player. And in fact, I haven't played for several years because I was so bad. Yeah,
0: so what do you mean by terrible? Because I always think this is actually something deep in terms of behavioral science, right? I'm always like, well, oh, what's your goal?
2: Well, yes, that's a, that's a good point. I only used to play socially, I should say. So I play with...
0: So did you have fun?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the fact that I, was, I never won, it wasn't really the issue. So,
0: so then you weren't a terrible poker player. <laughs> no, I really do quibble with that. I mean, I, I'm kind of obsessed with benchmarking problems, you know, and I think that what happens with something like poker, where there is this score that you're keeping, right, which is like, are you up or down in chips? Um, you know, I think we benchmark to like this idea of like, well, I'm supposed to end up positive in terms of chips. But I don't know that that's actually the right way to think about whether you're good or bad in a game like that. In the same sense of like, when I when I buy a bottle of wine, I'm not sad that I'm down in chips I got the same for it, which is like a great bottle of wine. So you had a great social time. I think it matters. It's little here, no there, whether you actually end up being down in chips or up in chips, but. That's a whole other thing. I just come sort of obsessed with those. Like, well, who are you to say what
2: someone's goal is? No, that's I. I I like that reframing. It's uh, the paying paying of chips for fun, basically, isn't it? Right,
0: like you're buying a bottle. You, I I can buy a bottle of wine and go to dinner. I could go play poker with my friends. Now, you know, I I would say that poker is generally a little bit more fun if you're winning. You know,
2: but. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, I mean, that re- brings me nicely on to the to question I wanted to I the question I want to ask. I mean, it, it's quite an unusual career path, I suppose, to go from cognitive psychology to poker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a, a bit more about how that happens? What was what was the, the, the process?
0: Yeah. So, OK, so let me just start off by saying as background, a, a few things that the listener should know. I think that people think about poker now as something that has always been on television but I would like to point out that it was not on television and there was also no internet poker. So uh, that all started right around like 2003 ish, 2002, 2003. So I started playing in 94. So, um, uh, you know, it was, it was firmly classified with vice. Like if you said you were a poker player, they were like, Oh, and are you also a sex worker? So, um, I, I'm. By the way, nothing again. I'm nothing against sex workers. I'm just saying, like that. People thought about it. We know that people don't necessarily have positive views of those types of professions, and they sort of viewed like, "Are do you deal drugs on the side?" Also, you know, it's like no, I just, you know, because it was like gambling. You know, it's like so we're thinking about it. It's like a vice. Um
2: it Wasn't seen as a leisure activity, I guess. Yeah.
0: It wasn't seen so much as a leisure, well, particularly if you said you were going to do it for your life. I mean, I think people thought about it as a leisure activity in terms of like my Wednesday night poker game with my friends. But if you said, oh, I'm going to do this for a living, they'd be like, you know, they they really like, and the heroin too, you know, it was just like, so so I just want to make that clear. So a couple of accidents of fate. My brother, when he was a, a, a teenager, became very obsessed with chess he actually got quite good. He started going on the tournament circuit. Think about this now because I'm watching King, Queen's Gambit, which, by the way, drugs and chess. There you go. So um, so anyway, he he then went to New York to study with a grandmaster. And, uh, you know, it's like you're kind of in New York in the chess world, and then you're sort of crossing paths with, like, backgammon players or gym players or poker players. And so when he was 18, he started getting super obsessed by poker. He started playing poker. Um, initially was quite bad at it, not surprisingly, then became quite good. So this all happened a decade before any of this other stuff happened. So so I had this view into poker that most people don't wouldn't have had at that time, which was it's totally a legitimate thing to do as a profession. The, a lot of the people who do it are not like gambling addicts, which is the way that people thought about them at the time. But like some of the smartest people I've ever met, like I was, I was meeting like Eric Seidel, who's like a very famous poker player, um, somebody like Jason Lester, um, you know, obviously I knew who my brother was and, and oh, Dan Harrington, like these, very, these super smart, brilliant people who also had uh, backgrounds in investing. So Eric Seidel also traded options and things like that. People were very smart. And so I had a different view of poker players. I understood it was something you could do as a profession. This is all a decade before. And now I know these people. I've known Eric since I was 16 years old, long before I played poker. So then it becomes, uh, you know, it's 2004 and I'm at the end of my PhD work. I'd actually done five years and I was going out on the job market applying for tenure track positions Um, and I got sick. So, you know, my body just kind of let me down, I guess, or maybe didn't let me down in retrospect, I don't know. And um, I was in the hospital for two weeks and I just had to delay my job search for a year. And so in that year, I needed time to recuperate Uh, which meant that I needed money. And, um, you know, I didn't want to like start a new career. Like I was planning to go back to become a professor. So my brother actually was the one who suggested, you know, maybe you should try playing poker. So I I watched him play and I knew, I kind of knew enough about the game. And uh, at the time, because it wasn't on television, because people didn't really understand it, the gap between being good and everybody else was huge. So I could come in with some knowledge from my brother and be better than the people I was playing against because people didn't, didn't know the game. So I started having success right away, despite not being particularly good myself, just because you didn't have to be that good in order to really beat everybody around you. And then obviously I started learning the game as I went along. So, so in that first year, like I just experienced a lot of success and I actually kind of really fell in love with the game. I, th- I think partly for the reason that I, I think twofold. One is that it was really pulling on the same kind of threads that I really love to pull on. which is you know, how do you decide under uncertainty, which I just think is really interesting. Um, and this was a very high stakes, fast paced way to do it. Um, so that I thought that, you know, and I, I love this idea of like how do you build models on incomplete information? And so that was, you know, all really great for me. And the other thing I think, that really attracted me to the game is that I didn't feel good. I mean, I was sick. And uh, it was a, it was pretty, it was a somewhat chronic at the time. I, I experienced it in an acute way that caused me to have to take the year off. And I was kind of getting over that, but I didn't feel well. Um, and remember, this was very anonymous at the time. Like there was no like, oh, I'm going to be on television. You know, it was like, oh, I'm going to sit in a back room with a bunch of 60 year olds, you know smoking cigarettes for the rest you know that's kind of what the job was at the time um and there was something about like retreating from society at that point because I didn't feel well that I think was really attractive to me at the time and so I think those two things kind of came together and I kind of dove headlong into the game.
2: It's interesting you saying about um about chess and comparing it to or your brother um playing chess that. But um because one one of the things you say in thinking in bets is that poker is not chess.
0: Yeah, so actually one thing that's really interesting is that there's there's a lot of crossover from backgammon to poker. So uh Dan Harrington, Gus Hansen, Chip Reese, Jason Lester, Eric Seidel, all incredible backgammon players. But there's actually Paul McGrill was one, but there's actually not so much crossover between chess and poker. Um Paul McGrill was one person who who actually had some really good crossover there, and I think the I think the reason is that they they are so different. You know, if you think about backgammon, okay, so you don't have the incomplete information problem, right? I can see my opponent's whole board, but uh, you do add this ra- random element, right? Like the luck element in backgammon is obviously quite strong, um, really in the short run. So, um, so I think that that's why you get more crossover between those two games and chess. So this crossover that my brother made between chess and poker was was actually a little bit more unusual, but he's also quite a good backgammon player. And we had played cards a lot when we were growing up. So he was used to this idea of like hidden information and and the influence of luck because of sort of how we have had grown up also. So I think that also allowed him to
2: have more crossover. But you say as well that, that life is more like poker than it is like chess. Is that because of that luck element?
0: So Well, so yeah, it's both of them. So and by the way, I'm not the first person who said that. John von Neumann was the original person who said that, who was the father of game theory. So I don't want to take credit for something John von Neumann for himself. But um,
2: was he a poker player as well? Or? He was
0: actually, you want to know something? Uh, um, George Dyson, Dyson, who's Freeman Dyson's son, once sent me a, a marker from a casino in, in New Jersey. And a marker is like you owe money. And so there's, there's you have a mark, obviously a paper mark. So, because he was actually a poker player, and apparently quite a bad one. So, what I hear. So, um, but he's, you know, he's the father of game theory. And he actually modeled that on a relatively simplified version of poker. And he was asked by a colleague of his, Jacob Bernofsky, um, who had read Theory of Games, which von Neumann had authored with Oscar Morgenstern. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting, this game theory, but uh, why didn't you model it on the game of chess? Because, you know, people kind of thought about, you know, we still hear that, right? Oh, he's playing three-dimensional chess. Um, That's a huge compliment. And what, what, you know, to paraphrase, basically what von Neumann said back is chess isn't a game, it's a calculation. Uh, poker is a game. So what, what did he mean by that? Well, in chess, um, we can think about this problem of, so what does an outcome mean, right? Like what is the result of a decision mean? And in chess, you can kind of see this difference between chess and poker in this way. If the only thing that I know is like, let's say you and Eric played a game of chess and Eric won. so So this is the only thing I know, but I literally didn't see a single move in the game. I still know that Eric made better decisions relative to you. But if you play an hour of poker, and I know that Eric won, I know no such thing. Okay, so uh, this thing that I call resulting out- outcome bias, um, uh, it's total- a totally reasonable thing to do in chess. Actually, that's partly where the error comes from, right, is that sometimes it does work. And the reason why it works in, in chess is that the moves, the, the pieces cannot move unless there's an- by an of skill. That's the only way that the pieces can move around the board. Nobody's rolling dice. And then like, I'm sorry, you have snake eyes like you lose your queen um, or you get an extra bishop if you roll a seven or something. So, so there's that. And then the, the other thing that's very, you know, and obviously in poker, that's not true. Cause I, you know, I can, I can be 98% to win and only the queen of clubs is going to cause me to lose the hand, but like the queen of clubs can get dealt. And I, so I don't know if that's what happened when you lost. I, I don't know if it was more chess like game or more, po- you know, or there was a big influence of luck. So that's kind of number one, and you can see how that maps onto life a lot better. Even if you take like a very simple decision, like you go through a traffic light. I don't tell you what color it is. You go through a light and you get in an accident. Was it a bad decision or not? I. It's hard for me to tell. Now, if every, you know, if if out of a hundred times you get in an accident forty times, I can be very confident you're a bad driver. But but I don't I don't know on the one time. I need more information. So, and that's where the second piece comes in: is that in chess, it's you're in a complete information environment, uh, at, at least in regards to the pieces. Now, there's some incomplete information. I don't know what openings you know, for example, or what you've studied. But, um, but in terms of the pieces, I know your whole position. Um, and so, therefore, because there's no luck and no hidden information, what von Neumann was saying was, I can, uh, for any move that I'm considering, I can calculate out all the possible responses. And then I can figure out what all my possible responses to that are. And assuming I have enough computing power, I could brute force that game till the end of the game, which is really what something I built Big Blue did before you had like AlphaGo and, and um, those kinds of more sophisticated deep learning algorithms. Big Blue was just brute forcing that game. Um, but you can't do that with poker, which is why it took a lot longer for AI to start to sort of figure poker out because you can't brute force poker because you've hidden information. I can't see my opponent's cards. And I, there's very few decisions in life that are chess-like. Almost every decision is more poker-like.
2: Is that in terms of uh, the hidden information, but also the element of luck?
0: Both, right. So the world is stochastic. Um, so, you know, even if you have perfect information, um, you don't know how things are going to turn out. Uh, even in, So you can think about that as like the stochastic problem is like I can know everything I need to know about a coin. But when I flip it, while I might know probabilistically in, in a, the sense of over the long run, how often it's going to land heads or tails, I do not know on that flip. So that that's the luck element. But then you add into that, let's say I don't actually know if the coin is 50-50. Or maybe, maybe like in extreme cases, I might not know if it's got two sides or three or four. So um, so that's kind of the situation that we're mostly in. And like we can think about a super simple, like a really simple thing like trying to hire somebody. If you wanna know why, depending on how you cut the data, 50%, you could either say 50% of hires don't work out or you can say something like third are great, a third are me, you know, and a third are a disaster. Okay. So why is that? Because obviously that's a, a forecasting problem. Like we're trying to forecast who's going to fit in our company. We do all this interviewing. We, we obviously think we know ourselves and what our own preferences are. And, and we think who's going to be like a good fit for this job. And we think we re- really understand that, but yeah, we're failing all the time. Well, it's for those two reasons. There's just a whole bunch of stuff we don't know about the candidate. Um, You know, some of which will reveal itself later, but then also the world is stochastic. Like, They could be great and then something happens in their life that we have no control over and all of a sudden their work, you know, goes to crap. And we don't even know, like, you know, it's like a year later, they're going through a divorce and it's just a disaster for their work or whatever, something happens. You know, and I think the pandemic has taught all of that, you know, all of that to us like pretty, you know, in our face, right? So the world is certainly stochastic. I I doubt very many people have pandemic on their bingo card. Um, you know, and then, you know, and and there's little things like, for example, you know, from my perspective, a lot of the stuff happening with vaccines, that's just a matter of luck from I don't have any control over when that's going to happen or not. As an example, um, I don't have control over whether anybody else wears a mask besides me, right? So these, these are all things that are outside of my control. And then the other thing is that there's just, you know, it's, it's a novel virus. So we can all, we all know, like the stuff we thought we knew about the virus in March, Turns out it's really different than today. So um, gosh, back in March, people didn't think it was, uh, that it could be spread by aerosols, right? People thought it was respiratory droplets. So that's a really big difference in your knowledge and it's gonna change your behavior a lot, whether you know that thing or not, but we didn't know it. So th- th- these this is the con- these are the conditions under which we're making decisions all the time. It's why poker makes such a good model for understanding human decision-making because that's really what life is.
1: So uh, you recently uh, published this new book how to decide simple tools for making better Choice. first could you tell us a bit about your motivation for writing this book
0: Yeah so so the the motivation honestly for for writing this book um was that so when when I wrote Thinking in Bats um you know it had it enjoyed some success I was quite lucky for that Um, but the thing that I kept hearing from people who read it was, okay, so like, I understand this, I get it. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a big influence of luck and hidden information on my decisions. So how would I make a good decision given that? So, you know, I think about thinking in bets is like, uh, this it's a book about why, right? Like, why do you want to be thinking about decision-making this way? Why, do, why should you care about luck? Why should you care about incomplete information? And then there's a sprinkling of how in it. Certainly like the latter half of the book starts to get into a little little bit of stuff that would be practical, but that's not really the focus of the book. It's more, there's a lot of uncertainty and it causes your decisions to go awry in a whole bunch of different ways. Let me try to explain to you what they are, and then I'll give you a little something of like a little taste of what how you might fix it. But it's really a why book. So, you know, what my readers were asking me for was a how book. And so I thought, well, I should try to do that. I should try to offer people, you know, actual, like, here's what a good decision process looks like. Here are the tools that you can use to execute on that decision process really well. Uh, here's how you can figure out when you can go fast, when you can go slow. How do you interact with other people? And, you know, how do you how do you actually, how do you actually make a good decision? Um, which is something that uh, people are quite... Bad at articulating, by the way. Um, uh, we don't teach it in school, and people don't really know what a good decision process looks like, even very smart ones. Um, and I'm sure you know from your group. Like, you know, I'll come into group, you know, groups of C-level executives, and you know, so what's your decision process? Just like all over the map um, because it's not something. It's not something people think about in terms of the how very often. I think everybody kind of assumes like, well, I've gotten to where I am in life, and I haven't died yet, so I'm probably a pretty good decision maker. <laughs> I honestly think that's a little bit what it is. Um, people have too much f- faith in their gut, as we know. Um, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. So anyway, that that was really why I wrote the book was because people asked me to. Honestly, um, not that I didn't have fun writing it. it. It was, by the way, like a humongous challenge to actually do it. And I'm and I'm really really glad that I took up that challenge. Um, but it it was really hard. But that but it was mainly to answer a need that I was being asked for.
1: Okay, thanks. Uh, you start the book with two very simple questions. What was your best decision of last year and what was your worst decision of last year? I did it. And I think like a lot of your readers, I answer with the best and worst or worst outcome. Can you elaborate a little about why this confusion is really important to understand and to tell us more about the concept of resulting and also uh, your Outcome, outcome quality metrics that I think very uh, helpful.
0: So here, here's the problem. It's, it's actually think about. It's really hard to figure out, particularly in retrospect, whether a decision is good or bad. I mean, it, it's part of the reason why I wrote the book because people don't really know what a good decision process looks like, right? They, it's very hard to go back and reconstruct what the decision tree looked like. What did you know at the time, which really matters, for, in, as opposed to what revealed itself after the fact. What were the different possible outcomes that could have occurred that you could have actually foreseen? What were the probabilities of those outcomes happening? These are, this is all information that you would actually need in order to be able to understand whether a decision was good quality or bad quality. I also need to know things about goals and values. And, you know, I mean, the, this is why the book isn't three pages on how to decide it's 220 pages or something. So it's complicated. Um, so You know, Danny Kahneman talks about this a lot, that what happens when we have to judge something that's complicated or or particularly complex in the case of decision making, it's complex, is that we will make a substitution and we'll actually judge something that's very simple to understand and we'll substitute that for the, the judgment of the more complex thing that we're trying to judge. And that's basically what's happening when I ask that question, is that decision quality is actually quite hard, but outcome quality, well, that's easy. I know whether I won or lost. I know whether it was good or bad. And so basically when I'm asking you that question, what you do is you start to scan your outcomes for the really good outcomes and the really bad outcomes. So you're actually doing this substitution where you're looking at the wrong thing. But it's because decision quality is so hard and so opaque. So here's the reason why that's a really bad thing to do is that if we we can think about the relationship as a two-by-two two matrix between decision quality and outcome quality, and there's going to be four quadrants, there's a good decision with a good outcome. It's called that earned rewards. There's a good decision with a bad outcome. We can call it bad luck, right? There's a good decision with a, a, a bad decision with a good outcome, that would be dumb luck, and a bad decision with a bad outcome, we could call that just desserts. So essentially what's happening when I'm asking you to work backwards in that way and say, tell me what your best decision and your worst decision are, is you're only looking at two of those quadrants. But we know that there's a really good possibility that the best decision you made last year did not work out well. And that the worst decision you made last year actually did work out well. And like I I I have lots of examples from my own life. Like I can think in this past year, um, in February, I think it was like somewhere at the beginning of February, the middle of February. Um I went on a plane and I had a, like, I had a mask in my, suit, par- but I didn't put it on. And like, I don't know, like, I, I think I was sort of like nobody else had a mask on and I do look stupid. And I don't know, at that point, the CDC in America was saying, well, masks aren't really important. It turns out they, you know, the, because they wanted to preserve PPE, um, but, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but even so, it was so dumb, like, cause it was such an easy hedge. Right? It was like such a free world to just put the mask on. And I didn't do it. And, and I didn't get sick. I didn't get COVID. Nothing bad happened to me. But boy, was that a freaking bad decision. I mean, it really was. Um, I knew enough that I should have put that mask on my face. And I understand risk enough that I should have put that mask on my face. And I didn't do it. And meanwhile, by the way, I did wipe my seat down with light bulb wipes. And I was, you know, it was such a bad decision not to put the mask on. But that's the point. that I didn't die. I didn't get COVID, nothing happened to me. And yet I know that was a terrible decision. So that goes in the dumb luck category, right? And we just, when we're trying to work backwards from these things, we just kind of don't see that stuff. Um, And it's a real problem because, look, in order for us to learn from experience, we have to understand what the experience is trying to tell us. And if we take too much signal from a single outcome, which is what we do, We don't actually explore all four of those quadrants well enough. And I need to be able to look back and not think that that decision to not put a mask on my face was a good decision. Because if I do that, it's going to cause me to make bad decisions going forward. So I have to separate myself out from the fact that nothing bad happened and not fool myself into thinking that was a good decision because it wasn't. It was bad. And I should not make those types of decisions again. I should think about what were the causes of me making that bad decision. Well, I felt like this weird social pressure. I got to fix that. And so, so that's the real problem is it, it creates this paradox of experience, Just like we need experience to learn, but then experience kind of makes us not learn in this weird way. That's exactly
1: why I think your book is really helpful, simple tools, but uh, which are very helpful to make better decisions. At the heart of your uh, framework to make better decisions, there is this concept of three P's for preference, payoff, and probabilities. Can you describe your uh, six, I think, uh, step process to make better decisions?
0: Yeah. So basically, like when you're trying to figure out like what, what is a good decision? I think the first step is to understand that any decision you make is actually a prediction about the future. So why do I say that? Like, you can take a very simple decision, like you're in a restaurant, and you're trying to decide between the chicken and the fish. And if you choose, whichever one you choose, let's say you choose the chicken, you're making a prediction that the future version of you is going to be happier as it relates to your goals, right? So could be that your your goal is uh, the most tasty dish or your goal is the healthiest one. I don't know what your goal is, but whatever your goal is, that you're going to be more likely to actually achieve that goal if you choose the chicken versus the fish. That's kind of what you're saying when you make that order. If I choose a particular route to work, I'm making a prediction that that route is going to get me to work on time uh, over other routes, Or the time that day that I choose to leave, right? That th- These are all predictions about like, when do I need to leave in order to leave enough cushion to make sure that I get to work on time? These are... And then uh, there are obvious predictions about the future, like who do you choose to marry? That's clearly a prediction about the future. But even the smallest decision is, is a prediction of the future. So what we know is that the future is uh, not determined and it's probabilistic. Those are the two things we know, right? So uh, one, it is not guaranteed that you will get one outcome from any decision you make. Um, and whatever that set of possibilities are, uh, each of them is going to have some probability of occurring. And each of those possibilities is going to have a different payoff associated with it. So some of them are going to be good and some of them are going to be bad. So now we get into uh, preferences, payoffs, and probabilities. So you have some set of possibilities, which would kind of be the fourth P, but sort of obvious, right? So you have that, what are the different outcomes that could occur? So that's really an O. What are the good outcomes that occur? But for any of those outcomes, first of all, I want to think about what our preference is for that. And that's going to map onto what the payoffs are. So we're going to prefer positive payoffs, meaning uh, outcomes that actually help us advance toward our goals. Uh, and then there are uh, negative payoffs or losses, which cause us to retreat away from our goals. So that's the preferences piece for any of the outcomes that we're um thinking about so we have preferences payoffs that that's one thing. and then you've got probability. So for any of those outcomes, um depending on what our preference is for them, right, which is what is payoff, uh, then we want to think about what's the probability of those occurring. So that would allow us, I mean, I don't use this term in the book, but it allows you to calculate a weighted average, basically, right, which is how likely is is the good stuff to happen versus the bad stuff to happen. And then obviously, you can look at what your exposure is in terms of risk, which is your exposure to the downside. So uh, you would think to yourself, what do I feel like I can tolerate losing? And then you can look at those downside outcomes, the ones that have a negative payoff and say, can I tolerate that given the probability that those will happen? Okay so so that's why you need to do those steps right so you have to think about what are the possibilities what are my preferences for those possibilities and then what are the uh, what are the what is the probability of any of those possibilities occurring so that's the first bit then you have to then for any other option that you have you need to rinse and repeat and then you can actually compare apples to apples next to each other. So now this actually gives us a way to think about how would we compare two options against each other. So for any option I'm considering, I would look at what are the possibilities? What are my preferences for those possibilities? What are the payoffs? And then what, what is the probability of any of those things occurring that now allows me to understand both two things, what, kind of what's the expected value for each of them, and then what's my risk associated with each. And then tending, depending on my what my risk tolerance is, because that's going to be different, and assuming that they're both within my risk tolerance, I can now choose the one that's going to create more upside for me in the long run. So so that's kind of the, the and if you think about that sort of simp, in the simplest sense, I know that sounded complicated, but I, simp- you know, if you read the book, you'll see it's actually much more simple than it sounds. But you would think about if I'm just trying to decide between the chicken and the fish What that's what I'm doing, right? The, the, the chicken is amazing. It's kind of okay, or it's terrible. The fish is amazing. It's kind of okay. It's terrible. I'm thinking about what's the likelihood of those occurring. Um, and then I'm choosing the thing that I think is more likely to have the, the two better outcomes than the terrible outcome. It's more likely, what I'm saying is I think it's more likely that the fi- the fit chicken compared to the fish is going to be great, right? So that, that's why I'm trying to say it's actually quite simple. It sounds complicated, but it's pretty simple to do.
1: And uh, you have to avoid some uh, traps, for example, the inside view. And can you elaborate a little about how to avoid uh, traps and uh, how to... Uh, be, thanks to this uh, framework, be helped and supported to make better decisions, avoiding traps and... Uh...
0: Yeah. So when we think about these kind of predictions that we're making about the future, there's kind of two things that go wrong. The The first thing is that I can tell you that whole process, right? Identify the possibilities, figure out what your preferences for those different possibilities are, figure out what the probabilities of those occurring are. And you can execute that quite well, except that that particular process that you do is only going to be as good as the beliefs that are informing that process. So like when you think about what are the possible outcomes, you have to have a, you know, reasonably accurate idea of what those outcomes are going to be. That's a part of your belief system. What's your knowledge that's informing that. When I think about what what are the chances of that occurring, you know, that's also going to be informed by your beliefs. So, you know, if somebody thinks that when they get in a car, there's a 20% chance they get in an accident, Um, They need to fix their beliefs because that is by no means what the probability is that you get in an accident when you get in a car. So, you know, like everything else, you know, it's only going to be as good as the foundation that that process is built on, which is going to be your beliefs. So the first the first problem that we have in terms of the traps is that um, our beliefs have a whole bunch of inaccuracies in them. There's just a lot of stuff that we believe that aren't really isn't really true. And part of the problem that we have is that even though there's corrective information that exists in the world, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we don't actually update our beliefs to to go, you know, when we get that corrective information. Um, The two main ones that you can think about are um, that we avoid information that would correct our beliefs, right? So that's like standard confirmation bias, right? Like we, we ignore it and then we also notice more stuff that confirms us. And we seek out more information that confirms us. Then the other problem is that we're just really good at rejecting for a variety of reasons, information that disagrees with us. And think about it as uh, when we see information that agrees with us, we kind of are like, must it be true? So you sort of read the headline and you're happy. Um, but when it disagrees with us, we come up, we say, ha- ha- um, sorry, when it, when, let me say that again, when information agrees with us, we say, can it be true? Like, eh, does it sort of fit? Yeah, Sure. When information disagrees with us, then we'll say, must it be true, which is a much higher standard. And so that's where we'll come up, like where they're not looking at the data right, or the person is biased, or it's an untrustworthy source or whatever. So that sort of fits into this overall pattern of motivated reasoning, which is one of the biggest con- cognitive traps that we get into, which is we reason about the world to reinforce the beliefs we already have, as opposed to coming across information and Uh, you know, moving our beliefs around in an appropriate way, depending on the information that we actually come across. So we get into this vicious cycle of sort of reasoning about information that we see to to actually just strengthen the beliefs that we have, which obviously is really bad for decision making. So that's kind of the first trap. And that's, you can see that, that, so that's an inside view problem, which is the world from our own perspective, driven by our own beliefs. Um, Now, the second problem with the inside view is is this other problem, which is our forecast get off because of the things that we believe to be true about the world. So if I'm thinking about judging the frequency, for example, with which something I think will happen, um, that's going to be subject to something like uh, availability bias, right? That things that I've come across or that are more vivid for me to recall, I'm going to judge as being more frequent in the world. Uh, So I'm going to think that more people die from sharks than coconuts. Um, As an example, uh, better than average effect. That's another thing about like, where do I sit in a mathematical distribution? That's an inside view problem. Um, You know, and and overconfidence or illusion of control. I'm going to imagine that I'm going to get the good outcomes more often than I actually will. So so these are all things that are going to cause my forecast to be off in some way. Um, so those are all inside view problems. And so the the solution to the inside view problem, this sort of reasoning about the world from your own perspective is to get to other the outside perspective, uh, which is going to be two things. One would be like what's true of the world in general. So that would include base rates. Just like I could go look up how often people die from sharks and how often people die from coconuts instead of guessing at that myself. Um, But what's also interesting is that it's not just like what's true in the world of the world independent of my own perspective, but part of the outside view is also what is Eric's perspective on the same information that I'm looking at? Or what is Richard's perspective on the same information that I'm looking at? And though, because they're going to model this differently than I am. So even if we're looking at the same situation and we may be looking at the exact same data, we can model that data very differently. And even if we model the data the same. We could come to different conclusions about what decisions we should make about the data. And also, we may just have different facts. So it's actually really important for me to be able to access the things that live in your heads also um, as part of a really good decision process. It turns out we're quite bad at that, partly for like this confirmation bias problem. So the best thing that you can do in order to address that, in order to be able to get to the outside view, is first of all, make it part of your process. Like Always make sure that you're you're trying to look at base rates, for example, and you should checklist that. Am I thinking about the appropriate reference classes? Am I comparing this to the right types of situations? Um, are there any uh, any uh, relevant base rates that I could go look up? So that's number one, is just checklist that stuff. And then number two is make sure that given that you have found the base rates and you sort of discovered the appropriate facts, make sure you get somebody else's opinion on those facts. And that's where we really fall apart because uh, we actually don't elicit other people's opinion in a way that makes us actually be able to know what their actual opinion is. And it's a very simple thing. We tend to offer our opinions first. So this happens either if we're on -on one-on-one and I say, what do you think of that job candidate? And I tell you all the things I think about them. And then I ask your opinion. Um, Or because we do a lot, most of the decision exploration in a group setting instead of setting up, you know, independent and asynchronous work first, where you get that initial opinion, you know, sort of feedback elicitation or opinion elicitation or fact elicitation or brainstorming elicitation prior to actually getting into a group setting. Um, And if you allow people to do that independently, then you get a much better sample of what their knowledge and perspectives are that allow you to actually get to the outside view. And the outside view is what's going to discipline all that bias that lives in the inside view.
1: Okay, great, Annie. We are close to the end of our interview, and I know uh, Richard is very uh, eager to ask uh, some final question and to have your perspective on global uh, um, challenge uh, now. So uh, we let uh, the, our listener to read your book, to know more about what uh, framework you will suggest. Richard, if you
2: want to ask your final question, Sure. Um, so um, I guess we, we, uh, we're we very, uh, as we're close to the end, as Eric said, um, we'd really like to ask you a bit about the future, I guess, um, and and a particular vision of the future of, of behavioral science. So where do you see things heading, both perhaps yourself and more generally in terms of the field? Um, are there any, many, uh, any major challenges or opportunities that you're anticipating for the field of, of behavioral science?
0: Oh, gosh, I think I can take this kind of two ways. I think I, I think I, I'm going to give two different answers. I think the first has to do with I think now I think the field has gotten really far in terms of really understanding where human decision making goes awry, understanding bias, you know, biases and heuristics and also also the influence of noise, which, you know, Danny and Cass and Olivier are, are about to deliver an amazing book out into the world. Um so I, I think that we kind of understand the problems really well. I think where it's going to go is into more sort of solutions space. And and these things are very sticky, right? I mean, this is part of people's mindware, right? Like it's, it's kind of stuff is really hard. And a little bit of what like Cass and, and, and Dick Thaler were exploring obviously was like a system solution, right? Like how can you kind of nudge people to a good solution, which is, you know, decision, which is obviously in that prescriptive space. And I think there's gonna be a lot more exploration in that space. Like how can we actually... Um, really, you know, in particular, how can we get far transfer of good decision-making skills, which is always a problem because we can get somebody, we we could, for example, get somebody to be really good in the moment, but then you see them three months later and they're, they haven't actually retained it. That's one problem, kind of transfer over time. But the other problem is transfer across domains. So if I get you to be a really good decision maker in one domain, does that transfer to other domains? And I think these problems are quite sticky. And I think that's a little bit where the field is going to go is there. Um, And I hope we're going to be able to make some progress. Somebody like Danny Kahneman would be quite pessimistic about that, right? But I think other people like me um, are pretty optimistic about that. So I I tend to be more optimistic. And that's space. Cass would be quite optimistic in that area. Um, So I think that's number one. But I think number two, there's gonna be a big challenge Uh, for behavioral science in kind of the new uh, information ecosystem. And I think we're starting to see that now with like spread of disinformation and how do people actually distinguish what's true and what's not true. It's a little bit what I'm doing with the foundation I co-founded, Decision Education Foundation, is how can we actually arm students in K through 12 um, to actually be able to deal with information and make better decisions as as you go into the information ecosystem that we're releasing them into right now. I think this is a really big problem. Um, The intuition is that when you have lots of information, people will will, will create better decisions, but people only have a certain amount of capacity to be able to um, actually decide what's true and what's not true. And what I think has happened is that it's caused people to rely on proxies a lot more, you know, and and that's aside from the fact that, you know, I do think about that, you know, very well replicated result, uh, you know, in processing fluency that, one of the ways that we sort of figure out if things are true or not is just how easy it is, is it for us to understand. And one of the ways the simple hacks for that is repetition. And I think about social media as a repetition machine. So, you know, I think I think there's gonna be a lot of stuff that behavioral science is gonna be faced with and have to tackle in in that space as well. And so I would say I would think it sort of in those two different those two different ways. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see how my forecast in a few years.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Annie. We are at the end of this uh, interview. It uh, would have uh, lasted uh, two hours and maybe more. So we encourage uh, our uh, listener to read uh, not until the, the last. Uh, book, but also the first one. Thank you so much again, Annie, for joining uh, us today. Is there anything you would like to leave our listener with, uh, perhaps uh, where they can find out more about you and your work?
0: Yeah, that's the, thank you. Um, yeah, there are a couple of things. One is uh, aniduke.com. You know, you can contact me there. You can see videos of, you know, newsletters, things like that on that site. You can check me out on Twitter at Annie Duke. And the last thing is I would ask that people go check out the Alliance for Decision Education, which is the foundation that I uh, co-founded. We're really trying to bring the lessons from behavioral science into K through 12 uh, in order to uh, really teach kids to be better decision makers. So I'm very passionate about that topic, and I would love for people to go and check out that foundation.
1: Okay. I know also that, Trisha, was very interesting about your participation, about the board of the Renew Democracy Initiatives.
0: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, part of part of what I do is, you know, that people should be able to have the freedom to make their own decisions, right? And that we need to allow people to do that. Um, so the Renew Democracy Initiative, which was founded by Gary Kasparov, um, uh, is trying to really tackle the problems of kind of the fall of liberal democracy a Classic Gove, it's, you know, it's really in trouble in lots of places like Poland and Hungary and obviously Turkey. And you're seeing the, the rise of these populist movements. And um, I really believe in liberal democracies. I think they should be supported and they should thrive. And so I put my money where my mouth is and joined that board at the invitation of Gary, which I was, I'm very honored to be on that board among some amazing thinkers. It crosses the, the both the left and the right coming together around a belief, you know, and saying we have minor quibbles on policy issues, but we believe in the idea of liberal democracy. So super excited to be part of that board.
1: Okay. So listener, follow also uh, what happens from the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Thank you. Thanks a lot uh, again, Annie. It was a wonderful conversation.
0: Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.